to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. We're still on Roman numeral 6 in our outline of 1 Peter. And this section of the book we're calling A Theology of Suffering. By that I mean a biblical understanding of suffering. For you see, in this section of 1 Peter, we are taught what to believe about suffering, our own suffering and suffering in general. This is the last section of 1 Peter before the conclusion of the book. And we're actually now on the last part of this last section. So here's what we've learned thus far in our theology of suffering. Four lessons already. First, the theology of suffering begins with understanding the suffering of Christ. And that's because our suffering is connected to His suffering. We saw that in chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. And then second, we've learned that a theology of suffering is necessary for those who live for the Lord. And that's because living for the Lord involves suffering. And it invites suffering. We saw that in chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Third, we have learned that a theology of suffering enables us to rejoice in our suffering. Because this biblical understanding of suffering teaches us the purposes of suffering. We saw that in chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. And then fourth, we've learned that a theology of suffering is the responsibility of pastors. We saw that in the last couple of weeks from verse 1 of chapter 5 through the first part of verse 5 there in chapter 5. And when I say it's the responsibility of pastors, I mean that as shepherds of the sheep, pastors are to feed the sheep. And one of the things that they're to feed the sheep is this theology of suffering from the Bible as they teach the sheep and preach to the sheep the Word of God. To find the fifth and final lesson in our theology of suffering from 1 Peter, let's go to our text for this morning. It begins in the second sentence of Verse 5, and we'll go all the way through verse 11. So follow along with me as I begin to read. It says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. 
Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. In this passage, we learn that a theology of suffering instructs us to be humble. A theology of suffering instructs us to be humble. What I mean is that a biblical understanding of suffering teaches, directs, commands us to be humble in our suffering. To be humble as we suffer. Now for a definition of humble... I want us first to look at our text, and then we'll consider some other text in Scripture. Maybe you noticed in verse 5 that the word humble is contrasted with the word proud. Did you notice that? Where it spoke about God gives grace to the humble, but He opposes the proud. So humility is the opposite of pride. Humility is the absence of pride. If you're familiar with the book of Proverbs, you see that contrast throughout the book. On one side, humility. On the other side, pride. Also in the book of Proverbs, we see that humility is the opposite of Haughty. In Luke chapter 14, verse 11, humility is contrasted with exalting yourself. So humility is the opposite of exalting yourself. And what would exalting yourself be? Pride. In Romans 12, 3, it says... Humility is not thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to or more highly than you should. In Romans 12, 16, humility is the opposite of conceit. In Philippians 2, 3, it's contrasted with selfish ambition and vain conceit. So humility is the opposite of selfishness. It's the opposite of selfish ambition. It's the opposite of vanity and conceit. In James chapter 4 verse 16, humility is presented there as the opposite of boasting. In Matthew chapter 5 verse 3, in speaking of 
humility. Jesus used the phrase there in the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, poor in spirit. You get the idea about this point, about what humility is? A theology of suffering, this theology of suffering that we're finding in the book of 1 Peter, a biblical understanding of suffering, God's Word on suffering instructs us to be humble. Not proud, not haughty, not arrogant or boastful, not conceited, not vain, not selfish, not full of ourselves, not too big for our britches. From our text, I'm going to show you three directions towards which we're to be humble, or three aims for our humility. First, a theology of suffering instructs us to be humble towards each other. A theology of suffering instructs us to be humble towards each other. Look at verse 5 again where it says there, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. All of us are to be humble. No one in the congregation is excluded. And remember... This follows the verses in which he distinguishes between the elders in the church, pastors, those who rule, and the sheep in the church, referred to as being younger. And there are distinctions between shepherds and sheep, but one of the distinctions is not the issue of humility. Both shepherds and sheep, elders and the younger, are to be humble. Each of us is to be humble towards all the rest of us. Thomas Schreiner is one of our Southern Baptist scholars. He's a professor at Southern Seminary in Louisville. I love reading his stuff. His son is a a wonderful scholar as well, but I like the dad better. Thomas Schreiner says that humility is the oil that allows relationships in the church to run smoothly. Phil, you like that? Ron, you like that? You guys that know something about motors, engines, vehicles, picture the congregation in that way. How well does a motor or engine run without oil? I know nothing about them, but I know they don't run very well without it. I can remember when I was 16 and had my first vehicle and Daddy told me to check the oil every time I got gas. And so I thought that was just a suggestion. And several times I did not, and I'm driving along, and all of a sudden I hear clack, 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 clack. And that's not good. I didn't know anything about vehicles, but I knew that wasn't good. 
Humility is the oil that allows relationships in the church to run smoothly. Now remember what humble means. You remember from what we talked about earlier? And remember as well what it doesn't mean. And then let's go beyond that with help from some of those passages that I referenced earlier and even some other passages in the Bible. For example, Romans 12.10 that I did allude to earlier says, Outdo one another in showing honor. That's humility. Outdo one another in showing honor. Romans 12.16 Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. That's humility. 1 Corinthians 13.4 Love does not boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. That's humility. Galatians 5.26 Let us not become conceited, provoking one another. Conceit provokes. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 2 says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. You still with me? Did you hear that one? In humility... Consider others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only out to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider or count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross. Colossians 3, verses 12 and 13 says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. Now that's helpful, isn't it? As we're considering this command, this instruction, that as we suffer... We are to be humble towards one another or each other. Verse 5 gives us a picture of how we are to practice this humility in our lives. It says that we are to clothe ourselves with humility. Does that give you an idea? 
Every morning you get up and, and what do you do? You put clothes on. The imagery being every day as the people of God, we get up and we put humility on. We wear it. We cover ourselves with it. We immerse ourselves in it. We aren't to take it off. And when we do, as often we will, right? There are times we take that humility off and put something else on in its place. When we do take it off, we're to acknowledge it. We're to confess it. We're to repent. We're to turn from it. And just as quickly, we're to take off what we put on in its place and clothe ourselves once again with humility. Humility is great clothing. It's never out of style. It always fits. Did you hear me? It always fits. It's always becoming. It's always flattering. It's always attractive. And those things that are the opposite of humility that we talked about earlier... They're the things that are out of style for the Christian, for the follower of Christ. In the past, they fit right in before we were followers of Christ. They were among the things that help us blend in to that culture, that community. But after we've turned from our sins and are trusting on Jesus as Lord and Savior to save us, these other things are all of a sudden out of style. They're a bad look for the believer. They don't fit. They're unflattering. And this is especially the case as we suffer. I think as we suffer, the great temptation that we face is to become even more about self. And even to wallow in self. More distant from others. Take out our sufferings on others rather than especially during the suffering, to go the extra mile in clothing ourselves with humility in that suffering. Now beyond the fact that we're instructed here to be humble, commanded here to be humble, we find another reason that we're to be humble in verse 5. Look there again. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another for, that is, here's a reason, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Peter here is quoting, or at the very least, borrowing from Proverbs 3.34, which says, Towards the scorners, God is scornful. But to the humble, he gives favor. What's another word for favor? Grace. And Peter, by the way, wasn't the only person who quoted this proverb. 
the book that precedes 1 Peter, James quotes it as well in James 4, 6. The Lord gives grace to the humble, but He opposes the proud. There's a psalm that sounds a lot like it. Psalm 147, 6 says, The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. You put those verses together and we start to understand that God gives grace to the humble. He favors the humble. He lifts up. He helps the humble. But God opposes, God scorns, God casts down, God isn't for, God works against the proud. And it's no different than the message that Jesus, or Peter rather, heard Jesus teach multiple times. One of those times is recorded in Luke chapter 18 verse 14 when Jesus said, Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Why is it that God opposes the proud? Well, you see, the proud don't see their need for God. A proud person doesn't see his need for grace. It's why they're proud. They see themselves, they think of themselves more highly than they should. They're biased in their own favor, to quote Calvin. And therefore, having this uber-elevated opinion of themselves, they don't really see a need for God. They don't really see a need. Why would they need grace? when they're so wonderful. And it's also why they're arrogant and haughty towards others. I mean, when you have this opinion of yourself, if you're not even impressed with your need for God, surely you're not going to be impressed with other people. No one will ever measure up to you. They don't fall short of the glory of God. They fall short of your glory and my glory. And we look, therefore, down our noses on them. We're haughty towards them. On the other hand, the proud person must realize I mention this in hopes that as we are proud, we will will realize that in our pride or in your pride, in my pride, we are shutting ourselves off from God. We are intentionally closing the valve to the grace of God. We're turning off the water of God's grace. And in it, we're inviting judgment, even more judgment upon our lives. 
But then there's the humble. The reason that the humble receives grace from God is that a humble person realizes and sees their need. The humble person sees himself as needy. That's what makes them humble. I'm lacking. I'm lacking in so many ways. I'm deficient in so many ways. I'm not what God would have me to be in virtually every area of my life. I fall short, far short of the glory of God. This is what it means to be humble. And this then is why the humble person is humble towards others. For you see, if we really see ourselves and think about ourselves in the right light, in the light of God, with the proper perspective, there's no way we could ever look down our noses on anyone else Because all that we primarily see when it comes to lack and deficiency is our own. And when we do see the lack in others and deficiencies in others, we're not seeing it from a sense of pride. We see it in a sense of brotherhood. I recognize in them what I know in my own life. Even if it's not the exact same sin or struggle or deficiency, it's sin. And it's struggle. And it's a reminder that all of us are in need before God. All of us. All of us. From the very best of us to the very worst of us, all of us are just spiritual beggars before God. That's what the word humble in the Bible means. When Jesus in Matthew 5, 3, the Beatitude says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's what He means. Blessed is one who is a spiritual beggar, who sees themselves in the position of lacking everything that they need before God, apart from God. The humble person then seeing himself or herself as a spiritual beggar asks, seeks, knocks. What does the Bible say about those who ask and seek and knock? Right along with our passage here. The humble person, what does he receive? The humble person receives grace. Those who ask, receive. Those who seek, find. Those who not, find that doors are open to them. The humble person receives grace, finds grace. I'll take it a step further. What the humble person really finds is God. What the humble person really receives is God. And that's exactly what we need in suffering, isn't it? What do we need in suffering? We need God. We need God's grace. We need Him to give what we don't deserve. We need His favor. Well, the only way that we receive grace is as we are humble towards each other. The first direction then for us to be humble 
is towards each other. A theology of suffering instructs us to be humble towards each other. A second, a second direction to aim our humility. A theology of suffering instructs us to be humble towards Satan. And I'm guessing that that throws up at the very least, a mild alarm in your mind. Now, obviously, humility towards Satan won't be the same as our humility towards others. It won't work itself out in the same way, but stick with me. We don't submit to Satan. We don't serve him. We don't put his interest above our own or at least we're not supposed to. But we do recognize His power. We do recognize His intelligence, His craftiness, and we have a healthy respect for Satan because he is a formidable foe. That's what I mean by humility towards Satan. One of the passages that has me thinking this way over the years is in the next to the last book of the Bible, the book of Jude, verses 8 and 9. And what I think we see here is this type of humility towards Satan, not simply from a person, but from another angel. Jude verses 8 and 9 says, Yet in like manner these people, it's talking about false prophets, also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they blaspheme glorious ones. Probably a reference to angels, almost certainly, even demons. But when the archangel Michael, not just an angel, but the angel, But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment against Satan, but said simply, the Lord rebuke you. Now, I don't want to give Satan too much due. I want all of us to understand that he is a defeated foe. Completely defeated. Utterly defeated. It was an embarrassing defeat. It wasn't close. But, I also want us to understand that we did not defeat him. You didn't defeat him. I didn't defeat him. He has not been defeated by our power. And this puts into perspective the way that we should view the devil. At least I think it does biblically speaking. And it gets toward... What I'm wording as, in a passage that's all about humility, 
a, a humility towards Him. Now look at verses 8 and 9 in our passage again. It says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the whole world. From those couple of verses, let me give you three things that humility towards Satan involves. First, humility towards Satan involves watching. Verse 8 says, be sober-minded, be watchful. We've seen language like that already in 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 13, chapter 4, verse 7. It means be aware, be alert, be vigilant, be on the lookout, keep your guard up. Why are we then to be watchful? Because we have what verse 8 calls an adversary. What does adversary mean? An enemy. An opponent. He's named here the devil. The word devil means slanderer or accuser. We are to be watching because we are involved in a great war. We're involved in what the Scripture would refer to as a spiritual battle that is every bit as real and in many ways much more profoundly so than earthly wars. This, this battle that we're in is a matter of life and death, and I don't even know that that is strong enough to describe it. Maybe I should say that it's a matter of eternal life and eternal death. So if we're told here to be watching, what would the opposite of watching be? It'd be to be unaware, wouldn't it? How well do you suppose someone is going to do in a battle or a war when they don't even know that they're in a battle or in a war? How well do you suppose someone will do against an adversary when they are unaware that they have an adversary? Well, you know the answers to those questions, don't you? Not well at all. The opposite of watching might also be unconcerned. There are some people that are aware that Satan is an adversary, that they're involved in a spiritual war, but for whatever reason, they're unconcerned. Maybe the reason is they're concerned with so many other things, but not concerned with the thing or among the things that they should be most concerned 
I think the worst of all opposites of watching would be unbelieving. Do you know that there are many people, many churches, who call themselves Christian people, Christian congregations, who no longer believe in the reality of Satan? Who think it's ancient language like hunchbacks and grinches and trolls designed to to scare kids into acting right, or as the case may be, kids in the congregation to act right, sheep in the congregation to stay on the straight and narrow, making it easier for, for everyone else. Satan must be licking his chops at people that don't believe in him. He's got them right where he wants them. They're like the gazelles roaming the plains that are oblivious to lions that are out there in the bushes. And you've watched the shows just like I have. What happens to those little gazelles? The next moment your kids are shrieking in horror as a lion has decapitated with one swipe of his paw or one bite from his powerful jaws, that poor little gazelle. Blood, guts, and everything else. No more little gazelle. You see, when you're unaware, unconcerned, unbelieving, when it comes to Satan, this enemy, the result is that you are defeated, and in some way you die. So, we are to be watching and praying. That's lumped all the time in the Bible with watching. Be watching and praying and preparing. That's the first thing that humility towards Satan involves. Now, the second thing that humility towards Satan involves is knowing. Knowing. Who knows what the first rule of war is? Know your enemy. First rule of war. Know your enemy. Well, this is a passage in which God seeks to inform us, give us knowledge about our enemy. We find a detailed description of it here. Some of it I've already alluded to. Brothers and sisters, I want you to hear me. Our adversary is good. And I'm not doing you any favors if I stand up here and tell you how the Bible doesn't mean what it says when it talks about how good our enemy is. Anyone that tries to downplay the power of Satan is doing Christians no service. Our enemy is really good. How's this for a motivational speech? He's better than you. He's better than us. 
Well, that fires you up to play the game, doesn't it? The, the opponent that we're playing tonight, boys and girls, is way better than we are. But he's not better than God. And there's power in recognizing that he's better than us, but not better than our Savior. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. A moment ago I prematurely alluded to Verse 8, referring to the devil as a lion. What does that communicate to us about Satan? That he's strong? That he's smart? Hey, those male lions are real smart. All they do is look for food and lay around. They may be the smartest creatures in the world. Smart, strong, fast, stealthy. Is that a word? Healthy's a word. Wealthy's a word. I thought stealthy's a word. If it's not, you get what I'm talking about, right? You ever noticed how lines in their coloring camouflage themselves? Does Satan ever camouflage himself? That ring a bell from the Scripture? What does it say? He masquerades as an angel of light. He blends in the Christian colors, Christian bushes, pounces on unsuspecting Christians or professing Christians all the time. If there's one word that I could tell you that describes lions based on what I know about lions, and among the animal kingdom, I, I like lions... I like tigers, and I like grizzly bears. I hope in heaven I have some. The new heavens and the new earth, they're not going to kill us. I'd love to hug a big old grizzly, you know, like the St. Off Elf with the racket. Does someone need a hug, a tiger? Wouldn't that be cool to ride on a tiger, ride on a lion? You bring your little Pekingese over here. Come see my grizzly. Here's the thing I know, though, about lions. They're killers. They're killers by nature. That's what they are. They are cold-blooded killers. And that's what Satan is. It says there in verse 8 that he's prowling. What does prowling mean? It means he's on the lookout. Like he was on the lookout for Job and others in the book of Job. It means that he's aggressively seeking to attack. You know what a counterpuncher is? A counterattack? A, a counterattack is when you let somebody else attack first and then you attack them. That's not Satan. He's an attacker, not a counterattacker. Lions don't wait for gazelles to attack them, or nor wildebeest. I've never wouldn't that be cool though to see that on one of those shows? The mad wildebeest attacks the lion. It wouldn't go well, but no lions, they do the attacking, and this is how Satan is. It says he's roaring. Satan's intimidating. 
He whips some Christians simply by intimidating them. It says he's seeking as he prowls someone to devour. That means he's bloodthirsty. Where Satan may be, he's soul thirsty. So what does that word devour mean? Well, literally it means to swallow up. It's the same word that's used of the whale that swallowed Jonah. He devoured him. But I'm not so interested in the literal meaning of devour. What I mean when I ask you what does it mean is how does Satan devour? More specifically, how does Satan devour Christians or how theoretically, hypothetically could he devour Christians or those who are identified as Christians or those who would identify themselves as Christians? How could he devour them? Well, we could answer it in a number of ways. Uh, he, he leads us into sin, causes us to stumble, makes us fall back, backslide we might call it. He interrupts us so that we don't keep moving forward spiritually. But I want to remind you that this is written in a context of suffering, right? So I want you to be more focused in seeking the answer to this question. How does Satan devour those that call themselves Christians in a context of suffering? He uses the, the, the suffering to discourage them, to make them angry, to make them bitter. But nothing that I've said thus far really gets at the heart of what I think it's talking about here when it says that Satan seeks someone to devour. Devour is much stronger language than any of those things. Maybe part of it, the path to it. How does Satan devour those who call themselves Christians? I would tell you what it's talking about here is he is seeking some, someone that can be derailed from their Christian faith completely. He is seeking to work in the suffering in such a way to cause that person who calls themselves a Christian, identified by others as Christians, not simply to fall back, but to fall away. To give up, to quit. And this is in keeping with all of 1 Peter much of which is a warning not to do that, right? Don't fall away. Don't quit. You're suffering, you're exiles, but you're elect exiles. Brothers and sisters, we must know this. That there is nothing more that Satan would love to do than to make you turn your back on the Lord Jesus forever. And he's working towards that end, especially as you're suffering.
So that's the second thing that humility towards Satan involves, knowing. And then third, third thing humility towards Satan involves, resisting. Resisting. That's what it says in verse 9, the first part, resist him. Now notice that's resist Satan, not God. Speaking of temptations, when we suffer, that's really the temptation to resist God. But in the suffering, God says, no, you don't need to resist me. You need to resist the devil. To resist him means that we aren't going to be an easy prey. We're going to be the gazelle that fights back. Knowing that uh, we have someone in us and on our side that's much more than a gazelle. The creator of lions. The real king of the jungle. To resist Satan means we don't roll over, we don't give up, we fight back. That's what resist means. It's an active word. We fight back. So the question is, how do we fight back against Satan? Well, obviously, one thing that should come to our mind is that whole Ephesians 6 passage on the spiritual armor that we're to wear in this spiritual battle. So we... We put that armor on and we resist the devil is what it says there. Watching, knowing, and resisting. But there's an answer in this passage as to how we fight back. Look to verse 9 again. It says, resist him firm in your faith. That's how we resist him. The way we fight back against Satan, our adversary, is to remain firm in our faith. Firm there is a word that means solid like a rock. So what it's saying is the way we fight back against the devil is we have a rock-solid faith. And we can because we stand on the rock. The rock's not simply a rock. He's Jesus. And the wind blows and the waves crash and great is the storm of suffering that comes against us. But we stand, don't we? Our house stands because we built our house on a rock. It means the way that we fight back against Satan is we hang in there. We don't quit. We don't fall away. We don't stop believing. We persevere in our suffering. We persevere in our faith. And it's an active faith in which we persevere, not passive. We, it's a resisting faith against Satan. James 4, 7, which is a parallel passage to this one in 1 Peter, says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's encouraging, isn't it? If you resist Him, there'll come a time where He'll flee. You know, after a while of battling a gazelle that just won't give in, you figure out there are other gazelles that will. And that doesn't mean He doesn't come back your way, but when He does, you resist again. 
And stand on the promise that He will flee. There's even more encouragement in this passage. Look at the end of verse 9. It says, Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the whole world. Isn't that encouraging? That I don't suffer alone? That I'm a part of a brotherhood and a sisterhood of suffering? In many cases, people that have suffered just like I have. So humility towards Satan involves resisting. And remember that I'm only talking about humility towards Satan because he's the second direction towards which we are to be humble. A theology of suffering instructs us to be humble towards Satan. and each other. As I wrap it up this morning, I want us to do some self-evaluation, some introspection. And and my question is this. How do you respond to suffering? Do you respond to your suffering in humility or in pride? And to help us all come to the right answer, I want you to consider these questions. When you suffer, is your response, I don't have time to care for you or anybody else because I've got to take care of myself? Or, God is taking care of me, so I've got plenty of time to take care of you. Do you respond to suffering with, I don't need any help? Or, I need you to pray for me. And I appreciate your help. Do you respond to suffering with, I'm not really worried about Satan? Or, I'm watching and I'm praying. And I'm preparing. Do you respond to suffering with, I'm so tired of all of this, I'm just going to quit. Or I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. A theology of suffering instructs us to be humble. And I am preaching to myself here. We better humble ourselves now. Because if we don't, God will humble us later. In the end, everyone will be humble. It's a matter of when it happens. Are you poor in spirit? Are you a spiritual beggar? Do you see your need for God, for His grace? Let suffering in your life teach you just how much you need and live in a world of need. Let it drive you to the Lord. Have you asked God to save you, to forgive you, to give you eternal life? If you have not, turn from your sins and trust on Jesus as Lord and Savior. 
He has done everything that needs to be done to make you right with God. Everything. In His perfect life, in His sacrificial death, in His victorious resurrection. He will forgive you for all your sins and give you eternal life if you will repent and believe on Him. I'd love to talk with you about it. If you have turned from your sins and are trusting on Christ to save you, keep on, persevere. We'll get to this part of the passage next week, but I'll, I'll go ahead and say it again. Believers, here's a great word. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and in due time, He will lift us up. Now that's a theology of suffering. Stand with me and let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Thank you, Father, for your wonderful word. And I pray now that as we've heard, that we would respond. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Nobody go with me. I still been coming to our church for months now and they come all the time and we just love these folks like this and are thankful that God has directed them our way. They want to officially join our church family today so we'll get them involved in a membership class and uh, all of that stuff and uh, for now I just want all of you to express uh, your thankfulness for this. So all of you that would be pleased to have them move their membership from Eastwood, say amen. amen. And we're all thankful for that. So in just a moment when I pray, I never can remember, but we're, I just, that, okay, thank you, see you, that was nice of you, okay, we're going to come down this way and make our way this way today, okay, this is the coming aisle, that's the going aisle right there, come by when I pray and speak to them after the service today and uh, communicate to them your, your great pleasure over God's uh, leading them to make this decision. Now.
couple of things I want to mention. Glenn asked me to mention to our senior adults that there is a day trip that is being planned towards the end of the week to some type of show in Greenville. Community show, I think. Uh, if you want to go, contact Heather tomorrow, early this week. Shirley Horton could answer some questions for you on it. I think that's what Glenn told me, Miss Shirley, that you had all of the answers for it. <laughs> so anyway, uh, senior adults, uh, get busy on that. Our class for the Truth Project meets this afternoon at 4.30 over in our spot that we met in the last time. If you didn't come the first one, love to have you join us. It is a great session. We did it at Preacher Boys on Wednesday night. Tonight at 6 o'clock, we're going to continue to talk about evangelism. We're going to begin to actually borrow from a book on evangelism. We'll make our way through several of those books over maybe the weeks and, and even months to come. Evangelism is so important, I hope that you'll make every effort to be here for these things. It's what we do, or at least it's what we are to do. Okay, And, and we want to be better at that. And that includes all of us. So tonight, 6 o'clock. For that. And I think that's everything. If it's not, it's plenty, isn't it? Let's pray. Father, uh, again, we thank you for today. Thank you for Rod and Dot. Uh, we've already grown to love them, and uh, I know so many that have known them for so many years are, are thankful that they're with us. And uh, we just thank you for this congregation that you've made us a part of. And we love you, and we love each other, and we want to do it better. And I pray that you'd help us to do that and be loving to them and, and good for them and serve them as they serve others and serve with us. Help that to happen to your glory. And send us out now with uh, more of what we need to suffer well. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.